0: So we are going to be in Revelation 21 this morning, only two chapters to go, and I'm hoping to cover both over two weeks. Let's pray. God, genuine thankfulness and gratitude does compel us to live more faithfully for you. Teach us what that means. We're all on a journey. We're all in different stages of growth and understanding of who you are and who we are and how we're called to live. But would you graciously lead us forward, God, into your truth and into your hope and into your love? In Jesus' name, amen. What is the destiny of reality? Like, where is this whole story going? What does the future hold? Can we know it? And if so, what should we be expecting and anticipating? And these are the questions which the last few chapters of Revelation want to answer, want to reveal to us, (laughs) pun intended, And this is actually a really surprising chapter because in contrast to sort of the uh, secular philosophies and pseudo-religions of the time, Greek dualism, but even today, and even unfortunately within many Christian circles, the idea is that salvation, uh, fully understood and fully realized is God rescuing people from this reality into heaven from this material earthly transitory realm to the realm that is spiritual and is eternal. And the reason why these chapters are so surprising is because Revelation 21 and 22 actually show us a very different end game that God has in mind. Not to extract his people from this reality and then be in a disembodied state of bliss forever and ever, but to actually redeem and restore this world and this reality. Salvation and redemption, this biblical vision for restoration touches every dimension of life. And as one commentator said, God's endgame places man on a redeemed earth, places humanity on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. And when that begins to sort of, the domino effect of that idea begins to um, kind of fall, some of those dominoes begin to fall, the pennies begin to drop, it really is a transformative vision of hope. So I'm going to read through Revelation 21, and as I do, I want you to just be attentive to themes, images, questions that you have, because I just have notes today, and I'm just going to say... What do you want to talk about? What do you see? What do you notice? So I'm taking a risk here that people are going to say, hey, I want to talk about this, or I'm not sure I understand this, or could you, this has always been uh, a source of comfort or, um, yeah, hope for me. So this is, I'm inviting you to interact. I'll be reading through the chapter and just track with something that you want to follow up on, and we'll see how far we get in 25 or so minutes. John's vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband and then I heard a loud voice from the throne look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them they will be his people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eye. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. And then He said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. To one who conquers, sorry, the one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake of fire, that, sorry, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to him, spoke with me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory And her her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates, and 12 angels were at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of, of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. And the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And the city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. And the building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. And the main street of the city was pure gold. It was transparent as glass. And I didn't see a temple in it. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. So as a bit of framing, we're seeing here a, uh, a story arc where the Bible begins in a garden, that God creates all these things, but then the drama really zeroes in on this, on this garden and these two people. And then at the start of God's new age, the age of sin and death has come to an end, and God is installing a new age, a new heavens and a new earth. It's the same thing. It's pulling the cosmic scope down into a new city. And with that is the idea that God is going to redeem and then from this place of renewal, uh, God's creation is going to unfold the way he intended it. Full of flourishing and prosperity and joy, the fullness of God's glory, nothing hindered by sin's power, sin's penalty, corruption, pain, evil, death. So it's this grand vision. And again, the vision here is not Heaven, as we tend to think about it, it is heaven and earth combined as one, fully integrated. Right now we experience earth kind of imminently, our our dimension of existence, but the Bible says that heaven is not far from us, but it's, it's veiled, it's shielded. We don't have access to that dimension, but here it's integrated fully. So, what do you see in the text that is either interesting to you or you have questions about? Um, Fire away. Paul. Uh, The question was, number 12 comes up a lot in the Bible, seems significant to God. Um, Have I read a lot on that? I wouldn't say a lot, to be honest. I mean, the the major symbolism of 12 comes out of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament that form sort of the parameters of God's people. And then those get mirrored in the New Testament where Jesus picks uh, the 12 apostles to be in a sense sort of like the, the new Israel, the new representatives of, uh, upon which the church is going to be founded. I don't know outside of that in terms of, um, th- that would be the, the focal point of the major symbolism. And, and we see this obviously here in this city, that, that the 12 gates and, and the, the names of the apostles and the names of the tribes being inscribed in the new city that again, God is pulling this story to completion it's, and maybe that's important because what we're not seeing here is like a hard reset where it's like there was the old age and everything that happened isn't, don't, don't worry about it. We forget it. And now we start completely fresh. Like we don't, we have these callbacks to life in the previous age that God wants to redeem and bring forward. And that includes his story so that in the new creation, we're going to look and see these names. We're going to, we're not going to forget. It's not like, it's not like the men in black thing where God's going to like do a memory wipe and we just kind of get, we forget the old ways and just move into the new. It's, it's not a, our bliss doesn't come from ignorance. It comes from seeing God redeem what has been into a future that's beautiful and amazing. Miriam? Okay, so um, I always thought the church was the bride of Christ, and here it says, I'll show you the bride, and it will be seen." Yeah. Um, the question was, I've always thought that the church is the bride of Christ, but here it says the angel says to John, "I'm going to show you the bride, and it's a city." So this is where it gets a little wackadoodle, depending on your, uh, <laughs> depending on the people that you uh, read. Uh, many theologians would say, in seeing this city, this is actually a picture of the church; like they're actually one and the same. So. Remember when Peter talks about how you are being built as living stones into a temple? To like, you know, there's that theme in the New Testament that we are the church and we're not a building. We're a people, but on a spiritual dimension, we are actually a building. We've been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, and now we build on Jesus, the cornerstone. This is sort of a picture of the perfected church being presented Does that mean it's not a literal city? Well, probably not. I think think there's cause there, but we have to see it as both, that this is the bride. This is the perfected church being presented to Jesus and being the new start, in a sense, the new Adam and Eve, the new humanity, but we're using the picture of a city which first century Christians would have understood because they lived in Rome and had this massive city, but it was a massive city built on the back of corruption and brokenness and violence, and now God is saying in the new creation, the city is going to look very different. And you are going to be a city that goes out into creation with beauty and purity and goodness. So it's a, it's a sophisticated symbolic vision, but it would, I, I would say it would be both and. Does that kind of make sense? Other things in the text that people notice, didn't he? Mm. Yeah, no, that's great. So the question was, there's a lot of detail given around the city and its dimensions. And, and this is where, to dovetail with Miriam's comment, I think it is the bride of Christ, but it also, I think, refers to a city. That There's a specificity here. And you see that back in... Um, in the Old Testament, Leviticus, where God talks about the temple and there's all these precise things that have to be only gold of this level of uh, refinement and I want this in the Holy of Holies and God's always been precise. And I think that, you know, at the end there, Denis, you talked about, oh, it makes me think I'm going to be like building and doing stuff. And, and there's a... The saddest thing, I think, with this vision that we're disembodied in heaven and just kind of enjoying God's presence forever... The saddest thing about that, um, that is the promise that we have now as Christians who die in Christ. That's what we experience. But eventually what God's going to do is re-embody us, a physical, material, like real life, real reality, flesh and blood. You won't, you won't just like be dots of light in eternity meeting another dot of light that used to be a family member or loved one, and you kind of do like a, like a Wally, like Wally, like it's this weird disembodied thing. Like, you're going to touch and hug and embrace again, right? When Jesus was resurrected, he said to Thomas, like, touch, touch my side. Like, see my hands. Jesus eats fish. There's absolutely creation is regained by Jesus. And then we move into the future doing interesting things. Do you notice that it, um Let me think where we are here. Verse 26. They'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There's still nations. There's still society. There's still like God's good creation as we know it. And so this is a this is giving us a dim hint, but it still should ignite our imagination to say, if you think that quote unquote you know the afterlife with God is going to be boring or life in the age to come is going to be boring or well I, I. I can't imagine heaven being interesting because it's going to be like one long church service where you just sing all the time. It's like, no, no, no. Those are all such dulled, muted understandings of what eternity is. Eternity is moving into God's future. Everything that makes this life amazing and interesting, but with the power and corruption of sin removed and with the full glory and presence of God saturating everything. So I've told my kids, when, since they've been knee-high to a grasshopper, when it comes up, It's like, what is heaven like? Well, heaven is when we're with God until Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, he's gonna create a new heaven, a new earth. Everything that you love about this life, everything that's important to you, everything that's beautiful and fun and interesting is still there, but it's turned up to 11 out of 10. It's just the glory of God on blast. Awesome. And I think we will be doing things like building and applying ourselves. I mean, why would God give you a heart for certain things that in this life, you just can't get to them all? It's because... They're there for eternity, to learn new instruments, to have new conversations, to uh, develop new skills, to develop God's creation. It's not a static, like, oh, we're done. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. I've given this to you. Now go out there and have dominion. Do something interesting. But now it's gonna happen outside of corruption. Anything else that you notice, Ray? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, if sin and death are done away with, why does the city need walls? Um, that is something, yeah, I, w- I would say I, I think the symbolism is important here. So for example, um, early on in the chapter, verse 1, it says, The first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And the sea was no more, or there was no more sea. And if you read that literally, you might say, What? That's so weird. There's no like water in heaven, there's no lakes. Like, I love boating. Like, there's no rivers, there's no oceans. That's kind of weird. Like, the earth is just like land. So, there's no water cycle. Like, you just start to unravel. But we have to understand what the symbolism of these things mean because Revelation is often leading us into a real truth but in a symbolic way. But if we misread the symbol for literalism, we can actually not get the deeper meaning. So in the first century context, the water, and you see this kind of play out in the Old Testament too, the waters, especially large bodies of water, were a picture of chaos and threat. So the Israelites avoided the water, And some of the most amazing ways that God rescued his people was he rescued them from the consequences of water. They get to walk through the Red Sea. When we're baptized, we are baptized under the water and raised to new life. We don't drown. God raises us up up spiritually in Christ. So when verse one says that there's no longer any sea, I don't think we're meant to read that literally. I think what it's nodding to, what it's um, trying to promise us and show us is in God's heaven, new heavens and new earth there's no longer any threats. There's no longer a threat. There's nothing to be scared of anymore. There's no source of chaos or darkness. That's been eliminated. I don't think we're supposed to read oh there's no longer water in God's new creation. And so when you get to the city with these high walls it's the symbol of protection right? Like when you had a city without walls, which Jerusalem had at one point, very vulnerable to attacks. If you have high walls, you sleep like a baby. You're going to be fine. No one is getting in to threaten you. And so the picture is not that, well, there's this new Jerusalem and that's God's new creation, but outside are all these threats still. It's like, no, it's just symbolic, a way of saying for the church, for God's people moving forward, there, there's no longer, you, you can sleep soundly. The anxiety level is zero and you're filled with God's peace and there'll never be a moment of your consciousness where you'll spin with like, Oh, what about this? And what if this happens? And I mean, how I'll put my hand up. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking through worst case scenarios. I'm planning for this, but if that doesn't work out, then I'll do this. And If that doesn't work out and I, I struggle with how much of that is, how much do I trust God versus prepare for what feels like the inevitable in a sinful world. A city with high walls says there's there's nothing like that to fear. There like anxiety is gone. Any there's no wasted moments of saying, oh, oh, but what if what if what if what if the shoe drops over here? What if what if I get the rug pulled out from under me? That threat is gone. Perfect peace, perfect confidence to move into the future, um, and God's future. Anything else that you notice or Want to comment on? Dan?
1: says nothing, that will be in there, so it's like, he, he's made this beautiful mansion for all of us to live in, if you don't know the measurements, it's about 1,500 square miles, and it's 1,500 miles high, as long as it's and long, which is hard to understand how big it is, and how it can even stand, but... Mm.
0: No, that's okay. Part of the, the purity and the beauty of the new Jerusalem, um, again, we're, we're meant to contrast that with the woman on the beast from the previous chapters, right, who represented Babylon and the ways of the world. And she looked opulent. She looked powerful. She looked beautiful. She held a, held a golden cup in her hand. But on the inside, the Bible said, was all kind of filth and corruption. And you see this city which God has built. And it's not just surface-level beauty. It's through and through purity. It's through and through beauty. And that, I think, is meant to remind us, even now, that God's ways are life-giving and beautiful, and the ways of the world might look that way on the front end, but you move through them, and, you know, the wages of sin is death. There are these paths that lead us down into darkness. And this new Jerusalem is being contrasted with the, the, the Rome, uh, the city of Rome, but in our context, just the, uh, any worldly empire that essentially says, you don't need to follow God. You do it right in your own eyes. You do you. Um, and that can look very attractive. But again, Revelation's warning is that it's a, it's a fool's gold. We talked about that, remember? It's a fool's gold. It's not actually beautiful and good. And maybe the last thing that I want to say before I close is with this city, if we think about it as both a literal city and as a symbol of the perfected people of God, notice that it says um, in verse 2 that he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. The bride has been adorned, right? I mean, I still remember watching my wife walk down the aisle when we got married. There are a few things that stick out of my mind with that kind of razor-sharp clarity, but when a groom sees a bride, that's a moment he won't forget for the rest of his life. And we're seeing that picture here, but there were lots of things that were done behind the scenes to lead up to that moment before the bride is presented to the groom. And we can read this and we can be like, wow, this is amazing, like one day we're going to be perfected, we're going to stand before Jesus, he's going to be pleased with us, that's awesome. But don't miss the symbolism here, that the bride is presented to God as already adorned, which means now in this life, right now, we should be adorning ourselves and preparing like a bride does for the wedding. And the way we adorn ourselves, Peter says, isn't by things like fancy hairstyles and jewelry and stuff, it's by putting on the character of Jesus. That's how we get ready. Like a bride who's wanting to present her best self to her groom on her wedding day, we, um, we follow in that same pattern. We say, today, God, if no one else around me is doing it, I want to honor you. I want to do the right thing. I want to follow you. I want, you to, I want your will to be done in my life. I want to present myself, as Romans says, 12 says, as a living sacrifice, pleasing in your sight. Now is the time where we get ourselves ready. There's a lot here, and maybe we'll dip into some of the symbolism next week when we look at uh, chapter 22. But to close, I would just um, maybe plant this thought as a dovetail to thanksgiving. It's very, I mean, almost all the time, 99% of the time, we say thank you in hindsight, right? We live life, we see things, we become aware of certain realities, and we're like, oh, wow, thank you. And thank you, God, especially for the situations that I was walking in here, and it felt like you were very far from me. I didn't see where this was going. I couldn't see any redemptive arc or how this could be redeemed at all. And now with five years, with 50 years, I look back and I say, thank you. Or we receive a gift or a note or a gesture, a sign of support. And after the fact, we acknowledge it. We say, thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for reaching out. But reading Revelation 21 and 22 will actually help you to give thanks in foresight. It will help you to say, yes, God, I celebrate what you've done and what you're doing in my life. That's awesome. But thank you that I have this promise, that I have this to look forward to. Scripture says, eyes not seen, ear hasn't heard, mind hasn't conceived the wonders that God has for those who love him. And I say this to my kids, that means you picture Life in the future with God. Picture the most amazing thing you could ever imagine. Like just really stretch your imagination to the uttermost. And the Bible says, you can't do it. Wham, whamp, comes up short. And I remember that as a teenager. I remember thinking about the future and saying, no matter what I come up with in my mind's eye, God says, oh yeah, that hasn't even, you're not even proximal. <laughs> like, awesome probably, but I got something way better. And that should lead us to thankfulness, to gratitude, not just for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but what his life, death and resurrection opens up for us. Revelation 21 makes it clear, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, he is coming to make all things new. And so hear the promise of this text and turn from the worthless ways of this world, turn to Jesus, receive from him the gift of eternal life. And let him begin a work of restoration and healing today that stretches into forever. Let's pray. God, as we worship you through this final song, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. This is a song where we glorify your name. Let it just compel us not to just sing a song to you, but to live lives that are full of celebration and worship. So I'm gonna invite you to stand and then we're going to sing. You're gonna know this song. It's doxology, but it's got a few like new lyrics. So this is gonna be familiar to you, but the second, and third verses you'll pick up on really quick. So this will be our closing song. Then I'll come up with a benediction.